Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Andrew Schwartz, professor of law at the University of Colorado. We'll be discussing his new book, Investment Crowdfunding, which I'll add a link to in the show notes for the episode. Andrew, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Andrew, if I decide that I've got an entrepreneurial bug, I have an idea for a business that I want to start, I need to get some money for the business, but I think that if I can get the financing I need for the business, it could grow to be quite big over time. Of course, I believe that because I have already decided to take the leap of faith to start the business. But as I said, I need money for my business. I wondered who I might go to for that money, who would give me the money to do that. And given that they're likely to lose all their money, because despite how optimistic I am about my business, I'm likely to fail, why would anyone be so foolish? Who would be fool enough to give me money to start my business? That is a good question. And the answer is, traditionally, friends, family, and fools, just as you said, to be foolish. Because a new business, a new venture of any type, to get off the ground, you not only need a good idea, hard work, but you also need some money, some financing, whether to buy supplies, pay rent, pay your employees. You need some money to get started. And you're absolutely right. It's very risky. New businesses, a solid majority fail, and very few make it to be the very big names that we hear of startups that make it big, Uber or something like that. But so because of this tremendous risk, you can't really go to your local bank downtown and say, I'd like a loan, please, to start my radical new venture to produce a new type of solar panel, whatever it might be. Those sorts of businesses, those sorts of endeavors are just too risky for banks. And so you need to find investors elsewhere. And like I said, the traditional first places to look are friends and family, the proverbial rich uncle. That If you know someone who knows you quite well, or who knows you at all, they might be willing to invest in you, whereas a bank might not. And even if you don't have a rich uncle or you need more financing, there's a sort of whole industry of venture capitalists and also angel investors that pursue exactly these sorts of businesses and invest in many seed stage investments, hoping that one or two will really make it big. That's the traditional model of startup finance, entrepreneurial finance in the U.S. So it sounds like if I want to start my business, I need to go to potentially some deep pockets, the proverbial rich uncle, maybe some of these angel or venture capital investors. I'd love to hear a little bit more about who they are in a moment. But there's also a lot of money in the United States and around the world. A lot of people who have a little bit of money to potentially invest, they don't have all the money I need. Why can't I go and tell the community or tell others on the internet or however I might communicate with them that, hey, I'm starting this new business, chip in a little bit of money and I will sell you some stock or give you a stake in the business to go forward. How does that work? Is that an easy process for me to do traditionally? Is that an accessible option traditionally? Or 
do I need to go through another route? And perhaps where does the angel or the venture capital investor fit in there? There's 300 million Americans out there, each with some money to invest. But there's a fundamental rule of securities law that goes back 90 years to the Securities Act of 1933. And similar laws in most countries or pretty much all other countries that says essentially this. If you want to sell investments, securities, stock, anything like that to the public, not to specially accredited investors like the venture capitalists, but if you want to go out and offer securities to the public on the internet or posting a billboard in your town, you must first, quote unquote, register those securities with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And registering securities means providing a lot of documentation and disclosure about the company, financial information, audits, things like that. And this is more colloquially known as an IPO, an initial public offer. And an IPO when a company lists to go public on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, costs in the neighborhood of several million dollars. The process, the legal fees, the registration fees, audit fees, other things, it costs several million dollars. For a company that is well along in its its trajectory, maybe that makes sense to raise hundreds of millions of dollars and spend the three million to do the IPO. But for the sorts of startup companies that we're talking about today, it's just literally impossible to spend millions of dollars to raise hundreds of thousands. It's nonsensical. The reason why we have this kind of venture capital model and the friends and family model, it's coincident with the securities laws, which say you only need to register the securities and go through that incredibly expensive regulatory process if you're offering them to the public, if you scrupulously avoid the broad public and only invite the wealthy and connected to invest in your startup, then you can avoid registration and those millions of dollars in fees. And thus, that's essentially what everyone has done for several decades now. And with the result, and this is leading to the subject of my book, but with the result that kind of Ordinary investors have been left out. And if you're not a wealthy investor with a million dollars or more to invest, or you don't personally know a startup founder, the law essentially says we're not going to let you invest in those sorts of speculative investments. And on the flip side, if you're an entrepreneur and you lack wealthy friends and family, and maybe you can't catch the attention of a venture capitalist because of either where you live or your socioeconomic status or anything else, the result has been startups founded by entrepreneurs who can't really access those traditional routes of accredited investors or friends and family. They really have not really had a viable option for financing their early stage startups. There have been some changes over the last decade in the law when it comes to 
raising funds for speculative ventures like we've been talking about from a larger number of people, perhaps a, an option in between the expensive IPO that you just described or the going to accredited investors route, which as you note, is not really an option for every entrepreneur out there. And this is the concept of investment crowdfunding. I wondered if you could introduce the concept of investment crowdfunding, which is the subject of your book, some of the legal developments behind it. And perhaps if you could talk about why you're motivated to write a book about this development and this practice of investment crowdfunding. Like I said, the securities laws effectively said since 1933 that to sell stock or other securities to the public, other investments to the public, you must register them unless there's an exemption. And we've talked about two exemptions. There's an exemption. You're exempt from the registration requirement if you only sell securities to people you personally know in a private sort of manner. And there's another exemption for if you sell securities only to accredited investors, the wealthy group that are known as accredited. And in the year 2012, the US Congress added a new exemption for investment crowdfunding. And this new exemption was part of the quote-unquote Jobs Act of 2012, the Jumpstart Our Business Startups, J-O-B-S, Act of 2012, huge bipartisan support signed into law by President Obama. And essentially what it said is, if you want to sell securities to the broad public, you may sell a limited amount. It was originally $1 million. It's now $5 million per year. You may, so long as you follow these special crowdfunding laws and regulations that are laid down in the Jobs Act and that the SEC later promulgated in a regulation called regulation crowdfunding. Since those regulations went into effect in about 2016, I believe, since then, entrepreneurs have been able to offer securities to the public under the crowdfunding exemption, which has a lot of regulatory aspects to it, but is much, much simpler and stripped down compared to the traditional IPO model. That is the essential idea is that if you give a, a certain limited amount of disclosure, there's a form that you must file with the SEC, but it's very short and simple, and the SEC does not review it. It's just a notice filing with the SEC with basic disclosures about the company. And you can list your company in a manner akin to Kickstarter on the websites. And there's several major platforms in the US that collectively, there's more than a thousand companies roughly each year that raise money in this way. Maybe half a billion dollars each year is being invested and it's growing as well. In the book, I talk much more about the specific regulations, other aspects of the form, but that's the basics. And then just finally, what motivated me to write it is I've long been interested, I think, in this sort of thing, microfinance, peer-to-peer lending. These were earlier forms from the 90s and the 2000s, and then reward crowdfunding in the late 2000s with Kickstarter and Indiegogo. 
it seemed to me that there was really a special opportunity for, like I was saying, for anybody with a great idea to get it financed with just small investments from a lot of people to get it off the ground. So this has been running now in the US for about seven years. I could talk in a moment about how things have developed over time. Over the last seven years, you say that we are seeing about a thousand of these crowdfunding offerings a year. So that's more in, in absolute terms than the number of IPOs that are happening per year, certainly. Raising about $500 million, which is probably less than we're seeing raised in the IPO market and certainly in the private funding market from accredited investors, but it does seem to be something that is growing. I wondered if you could talk about that development. Are there success stories that we could point to? And on the flip side, are there perhaps stories of caution or concern that we might worry about in terms of this lead to new types of fraud or greater instances of fraud that might target less sophisticated investors? Definitely, it's at the moment, and I think we're really in the infancy of this industry, but at the moment, investment crowdfunding is minuscule compared to venture capital funding in the US, probably as well as compared to even friends and family or other sorts of private funding. But it is in the very earliest days, and it's almost doubling every couple of years. And the growth is really tremendous. And one thing I talk about in the book is international experience. And I think maybe we'll come back to that a little bit later. But just let me mention the experience in the UK. The UK started its investment crowdfunding market six or eight years ahead of the US. So they have a substantial lead over there. But after about five or eight years of crowdfunding in the UK, that form has began to outpace angel investing. And for the last about five or so years, investment crowdfunding is behind venture capital, is the second largest source of capital for kind of startup companies in that country. And angel investors, which are traditionally localized groups in a certain town or city of wealthy people that come together and work together to find opportunities that they can all invest in, little clubs, investing clubs. In the UK, the angel investors have not entirely, but largely shifted onto kind of the investment crowdfunding platforms. So there's been tremendous growth there. So I think that's just looking a little bit down the line. At the moment, it is growing quickly in the US and it is expanding. But I think that it still is quite small and obscure. I hope in part with this book and as much publicity as I can get to try to let entrepreneurs and investors know about this opportunity and that it's something they might want to look at. Is it safe? Is this something that you should tell your your friends to, to take a look at? In the early days, there was tremendous fear and concern, I'd say, even before the market got started, a lot of academics, at least, and journalists and others, voiced concern that people are going to just take advantage of investors on this. You don't need to file the full IPO documentation. The documents are not reviewed by the SEC. And so there was concern that people would, that con artists would invent companies and post them on these platforms, accept a lot of money and run away. Well, in truth, and for a lot of reasons that I go through in the book, 
This has not happened. There has been one case out of the maybe 4,000 companies that have raised money in the US and investment crowdfunding. There's been one case where there was an allegation of fraud, and it was really on an obscure platform. There's always going to be a one bad apple in any bunch. Look at Theranos or Sam Bankman Freed. In any field with sophisticated investors, unsophisticated investors, there's going to be uh, some bad actors here and there. But the fears that this deregulated form of public securities market would become den of fraudsters and con artists has not come to fruition. And what I focus on in the book is that it's really the most important parts of why this has not happened, why the market is pretty clean and reliable, is because of private ordering. Not really so much the law, which I also talk about plenty in the book, but it's not so much the law and regulations, but more the economic interests of different actors to, who have an incentive to keep the market on the straight and narrow. Let me just give you one or two examples. I'd say first and foremost is the definition of investment crowdfunding that I give in the book. It's my own definition, but it's also enshrined in the law, is that an entrepreneur must raise money on an independent third-party platform. He can't just go directly to the crowd and seek funding. This creates a situation where the platform, the hosting platform, serves as a gatekeeper between the entrepreneurs and the investors. This gatekeeper, the platform, has a very strong financial motive to ensure that the companies that it lists are honest and true and not fraudulent because if investors find out that one of the companies was a fraud, they're going to go to another platform next time, and this platform will be out of business. So the platforms have an economic incentive to be pretty strict with and take a careful look at who they put on their platform. And in my research, I found in the US and in countries around the world, at least platforms tell me, and they seem to, they take this responsibility very seriously and only accept fewer than probably 5% of the companies that seek to raise on their platform. So that's just one example of the sorts of private ordering methods that I see in my book as particularly powerful for preventing fraud. You noted a few minutes ago that the United States is not the inventor of investment crowdfunding. We are a little bit late to the party compared to some other countries that have incorporated this concept into their own securities laws. In writing this book, you've traveled the world trying to see what other nations are doing. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that comparative point. What have other countries done? What experiences have they had? Are there any learnings that they might offer for the United States? Yeah, I focus in the book on several jurisdictions on Australia and New Zealand, on Canada, on the EU and the UK, as well as the US. And the Jobs Act that the US passed in 2012 was pretty much the first formal set of regulations on this form. In the UK, a couple of years before that, just some platforms just started 
on a one-off basis, getting a license from their equivalent of the SEC to run equivalently investment crowdfunding platforms, but they didn't really establish a specific law on it. Then, and just one other country I'll mention is, so we passed our law in 2012. The UK platform started in about 2010, I believe. And then in 2013, in New Zealand, I spent 10 years studying their investment crowdfunding system because they, in 2012, enacted a statute very much like our Jobs Act, but with certain changes, and then put it into effect shortly thereafter. And so really, New Zealand and the UK have several years more experience than the US. And Australia started more recently since then in about 2018. Key takeaway from most of these countries is that with the exception of the UK, which has kind of an absence of a regime, and I'll talk about that in a second, the other jurisdictions mostly took the Jobs Act and made a few, I'd say, deregulatory and simplifying changes, which I think are valuable. For example, in order to protect people from investing more than they can afford to lose, the Jobs Act has an annual cap on the amount each investor may invest in all crowdfunding offerings over a one-year period. And this investor cap is not a specific number, but it's a percent of a person's net worth or annual income. My point is, it's an overly complex, it's a good idea to have an investor cap, limit the amount people can invest in these speculative companies that are not going through the traditional IPO process. But the one that we came up with in the Jobs Act is overly complex and intrusive. So for Australia, by contrast, says you can invest up to $10,000 Australian dollars into each company. That's it. It's just very simple and good. So there are a number of changes that were made that just simplify things. And then other changes or differences that are more deregulatory, more liberal, as I call it in the book, where there are fewer rules and regulations than in the Jobs Act. And New Zealand and the UK really are, I refer to those two as the, quote, liberal jurisdictions in investment crowdfunding. They have very few rules, mostly leave it to private ordering and the market to to organize itself. For example, New Zealand and the UK have no mandatory disclosure whatsoever. The US has a simplified form, so does Australia and Canada, which are mostly pretty good, but in a sort of extremely libertarian, deregulatory, cost-cutting move, the UK and New Zealand just leave it up to companies and platforms to decide what to disclose and how to do it. And my broad lesson in the book is that in the UK and New Zealand, just like in the US, there's been essentially one allegation of fraud after thousands of offerings. But their markets are much, much larger than ours. In the UK, on a per capita basis, it's like eight or 10 times the size. And the two largest investment crowdfunding platforms, they sought to merge a year or two ago and were blocked by the national competition regulator 
because the regulator said investment crowdfunding is an important part of the UK financial ecosystem, and we really need you to keep competing against each other. It was frustrating for these companies, but it was a real compliment to what they've achieved. So my broad lesson that I've taken away from looking at other jurisdictions, and the SEC has largely done this as it's made small tweaks over the years, is to liberalize the rules, minimize the regulatory burden, because we're not trying to recreate the IPO process. We're trying to create a smaller, safe alternative where because of investor caps and issuer limits, there's no major harm that can happen if even the worst case scenario comes and one or some of these companies are fraudulent or cause harm in some way. Congress introduced crowdfunding as a means for raising capital as part of the 2012 Jobs Act. And of course, Congress doesn't always get it right the first go around. And you've spent a lot of time looking at how crowdfunding has developed in the United States and thinking about crowdfunding and comparing that to the experiences of other countries. If Congress were to revisit the Jobs Act 2.0 to pass some amendments based on our experience with the first seven years of crowdfunding, and if they commissioned you as the crowdfunding czar to essentially rewrite the statute, so you're the new James Landis, perhaps, of crowdfunding, what would you write into those amendments to the statute? What would you change if given the discretion from Congress and the SEC to take the lead on that project? First, I would be honored for the opportunity. There's a number of changes that I sought and wrote letters to the SEC and wrote about in scholarship over a number of years from the initial statute. And the SEC in 2020 put into effect several of these changes. For example, they raised the issuer limit from 1 million to 5 million. That was a good move. Under the initial law, and this was just a silly point, was even accredited investors were subject to the investor cap. But that was just silly. And so the SEC changed that as well and made another change or two, all in the deregulatory freeing direction. And for the most part, the law is really pretty good, to be perfectly honest, at this point. I do have some quibbles with the mandatory disclosure that still is required. For example, the law requires GAAP, GAAP financial statements, which make good sense for an S&P 500 company, but for a brand new startup, it's just an unnecessary expense to go through that sort of formality. It's a small point, but I think it would really could help with the market. There's one point that I would say probably the SEC could fix, and that is this. Like I said earlier, I in the book advocate for and the broad form is committed to private ordering over regulation. But there are times when private ordering doesn't work and then there could be a market failure and where we actually do need some sort of regulation to get to the best outcome. And so there is at least one place where I see that going on right now, and that is this. From the tradition on Kickstarter, investment crowdfunding follows the quote-unquote all-or-nothing model, which means that the entrepreneur has to announce at the outset a minimum funding goal and a time period to get there. And this is all in the regulations. 
And if the crowd does not support the project to the point that it reaches the minimum funding goal on that little uh, like thermometer gauge that's on the website, if it doesn't reach the minimum, the whole deal's called off, everybody gets their money back, and the kind of foolish people that had pledged pulled back from the ledge by the crowd. And in this way, the wisdom of the crowd discerns which investments are really worthwhile and which are not, and those that are reach their target and get funded, and those that aren't don't. That really sounds great, and it's a good system, and it's sensible, but can be gained. And that's our tradition in America. And they don't really do this in other countries, but our tradition in America is to push things to the limit. So the standard operating procedure at the leading platforms is to have all of the companies listed on the platform choose the same minimum target, and it's very low, $10,000, $25,000, sometimes $50,000, and the company is allowed to give itself as much time as it wants to reach that. So a company might say, our target is $10,000, and we have one year to reach it. And lo and behold, every company, quote unquote, succeeds and reaches its funding target. But what has happened here is that a company that really needed $200,000, if it raises $18,000, that's just going to go to the fees of raising it. The crowd has not deemed it to be worth funding. And it would have been better for the $18,000 not to be invested there, but just to go back and try again. So my point is that the market as it's currently working the platforms have neutered the all or nothing wisdom of the crowd model, which I think is very important to the whole form. And I would call upon probably the SEC to add some sort of regulation to address this. And what I suggest in the book, I'm open to other ideas, listeners, but what I suggest in the book is maybe some sort of regulation that says you may only raise let's say four times your minimum funding target. So if you choose a minimum funding target of $10,000, that's okay, but you can only walk away with 40. So I think this would encourage companies and platforms to choose more realistic funding targets for companies. And I think that would reinvigorate the wisdom of the crowd effect, which, like I said, I think is an important private ordering mechanism in the whole market. Are there any key takeaways you'd like listeners to have from this interview or readers to have? Most importantly, I just want to raise awareness, I'd say, of this form. It's not perfect, and it's not for every type of company, but for a a startup or an early stage company that has a kind of a fan base or a crowd of supporters, and this often happens with apps or breweries, plenty of other types of businesses, a company like that would be, I think, well-served to raise money simultaneously, if it can, from, let's say, venture capitalists on the one hand and from crowdfunding investors on the other. And you get the best of both worlds. You get not only funding from both sides, but you get good advice, people on your board, perhaps, from the venture capital side. But from the investment crowdfunding side, you'd get a group of really motivated 
customer slash investors. I call them brand ambassadors in the book. And they are the types of people that will forward your emails and retweet the company's tweets and such. So you really get a double return if you raise money from your customers. You get a marketing boost as well as additional financing. Our guest today has been Andrew Schwartz, professor of law at the University of Colorado. We've discussed his new book, Investment Crowdfunding, which I'll link to in the show notes for the episode. Andrew, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.